Hey there, welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. It is Monday evening, and it's rush hour, I guess, for people, so we'll hear some cars going by as I sit on my front porch. I don't know why there's still mosquitoes. It's September, but there are, so I uh, will complain a little bit about that. But this is another uh, mostly call-in show. I've been very fortunate to have lots and lots of call-ins, so I appreciate it, um, everybody who calls in. And um, But before we do that, I'm going to talk a little bit about characters. So I've been thinking a little bit, hopefully this sounds okay because I'm just using my phone, that when I'm a player, which is less often than a GM, definitely I'm more of a GM, I like to play the character the way that I want to play the character. Now what I mean by that is, if you look at what is the replacement in many uh, ways to alignment in many games, they've got these like character flaws and character connections and character strength and character this and, you know, that's cool. And I think that possibly for, and this is not meant to sound snobby or superior or whatever, but newer people to role-playing, this could be super helpful. Not saying that experienced role-players cannot benefit from it, but it could be really helpful because maybe they don't really get what they might want to do. Or maybe they don't have an idea, especially if maybe they're new to a system, right? But the thing is, is like, I don't want to know up front that I have, you know, a boyfriend that uh, is mad at me or that, you know, my parents left me, uh, you know, in an orphanage when I was two or that the government is, is after me because I did this thing. Unless I create that. If it's something that is rolled up in the course of the game that I, I am now kind of, for lack of a better word, forced to play as a character, I don't really like that. Now, you might be saying, but Daniel, alignment is terrible and it makes people run in and do stupid things because paladins and blah, blah, blah. See, I don't see alignment that way. I see alignment as being the most general role-playing tool out there. I see it as a general outlook on life and kind of metaphysical. Uh, this is also why I'm not a fan of the nine alignment system and much prefer the three. Um, also even the five better because I don't, the five that's in Astonishing Swordsman because I don't believe that anybody can truly be neutral, not unless you're a robot or something, right? Um, unless you're the referee, right? The referee has to be totally neutral. But I think that everybody has something in them, right? And if you are, if you want to play your character like a real person in a sense, if you want to like put real life into them, uh, for lack of a better way to say it, then having them fall on these really basic uh, surface-level tropes is just boring. That's a great way to make an NPC for a DM, right? Because the characters are only in, uh, interacting with them for a little bit, so they're, they, they're going to remember that the guy always rubs their nose or that they had a, you know, a, a nagging spouse or, you know, ate too many, uh, you know french fries or whatever and that's cool and it's once one note and that's cool for an npc because it lets you remember them but i don't want my player characters to be one note i want them to have depth in order to have depth they can't have a locked in idea of everything because i mean i guess there are some people that are that way but i think most of us generally about most things have an open mind and don't always do exactly the same thing that's why whenever there's these scenario things where people are like, what would you do if you don't really know in a lot of cases? Because there's so many other factors that are coming into it. 
and by defining all kinds of extensive backstory and flaws and these kind of things up front, I think what you end up creating is a character that doesn't have freedom. It seems like it's giving you freedom. It seems like it's giving you excellent stuff to work with. But what it's really giving you is, to use like a, a adventure writing uh, terminology, it's giving you a railroad. You know that your connection is to your clan. You know that your flaw is that you always uh, try to get the best deal. You know that uh, you know you have this other thing going on. And those are things you're always going to play up in the character. And to me, that for a long-term campaign is boring. Now, for a one-shot or a very short, you know, couple-session thing, maybe that could help just to jumpstart things and get it going. But I just think for a long-term character, and frankly, even for a one-shot in my mind, but for, for a long-term character, you don't want them to be so locked into that. You want to have the general idea of what their goals are in life and, and kind of, I don't want to say what they would do to, to, uh, to get there, but at least the limits of it, right? Like I might want to have a new car, but I'm not willing to go and smack somebody over the head and take their car, car right? Me, Daniel, that is. My character might be, I mean, who knows, right? So, right, you've got these limits there, but they're not hard limits, you know? doesn't mean I'll never smack somebody over the head. doesn't mean that I'll only ever want a new car. You know, these are just ideas that I have at that moment, and those should not be locked in, in my opinion. So, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Um, it, this uh, cyberpunk game has got me thinking about this kind of stuff because now I've actually made a character that way. It's funny. I've seen the systems before, and I always thought they were interesting, but now the more I delve into it, the more I realize that I feel like it's just locking you in, even more so than the 5e stuff, you know, which is the flaws... Connections, I forget what the other one is. There's three things that you have. So basically, anyways, what do you guys think? Do you like having these little, uh, you know, bullet points on your character that kind of define how they are? Or do you want a more open character that could make one decision one time and another decision another time? Because that's how people are. Inquiring minds want to know. Okay, so let's get into some call-ins. We've got a whole punch here. So we're going to start off with some from... Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast, and uh, what's on your mind, Jason? Hey, Daniel. Just want to say that whiskey and scotch are a staple of this gamer to answer Taylor's call to be in your show. And yeah, I guess I'm definitely going to buy tickets for next year's ShireCon. Those bandits keep poker chips sound pretty nice. Daniel, I think it's interesting, the point you bring up about reading the rules, misunderstanding the rules. And it's one of the reasons I think any time you go to a new system or try a new system, you should always play it rules as written for a little while before you start fiddling with it and changing it. So, I mean, I guess if you've been playing BX for years and you pick up OSE and you, you want to bring over your favorite house rules, that's one thing. Because OSE was BX before they added all this extra stuff on top of it to to weigh it down and hinder it but you know for the most part if you're approaching a new system even if it's a system you think you're familiar with because it's kind of like something you know i think you should play it rules is written for a while otherwise i pretty much agree with your opinions here um and i'm not big into party balance and i think it's okay for parties to run away so yeah I, i don't have a whole lot to add it's really interesting, actually, that you say that about playing the rules as written and also even more so even, which I agree with, even if you think you know the system to kind of approach it a different way if it's new. Because um, 
I've read something which really opened my eyes before I got into this OD&D chainmail uh, thing that I'm on. And it was, I forget which one, it might have been a Jason Vey article. Um, if I can find it, I'll, I'll put a link. But basically, one of the very first things they say is, when you want to play OD&D, like actual OD&D, not a clone of it, but the, the three little brown books, you have to essentially erase your mind of everything you think you know about role-playing games and about OD&D. There's things you, th- not about role-playing, it's about D&D and what you think you know about OD&D. Because that is what we do, right? We look at something, we're like, oh yeah, that's the thing, and you just move on because you think you get it. But the reality is, is that you've got to read the words because you'd be surprised, and I think people would be, if they, especially if they've only played uh, you know, the later editions, and I mean later editions including AD&D, if that was the last thing they played, and especially if they've been away from it, when you look back at OD&D, there are things that are different in there that are just different enough to make it really, truly a different game in my mind. And it really has different conceits and a different thought process, or you need a different thought process, to say, to run it than you do to run just regular D&D. It's, it is a very different game. And maybe I'll spend time breaking that down at some point. I will say that this conversation, you know, started on the Audio Dungeon Discord, and some of the really interesting comments that were brought up in there were the idea that if your low-level party does encounter something above their their keen, above their ability, you know, they should run away. That's okay. And maybe they're going to intelligently use the environment and intelligently use other things around there and other factions to engage it, or they'll come back later when they're higher level. But if you have a monster you can't handle, but there's a pit trap in the dungeon, you could leave that monster the pit trap for it to fall down. Guess what? You just fix that problem, right? If you have different factions in the dungeon and you can pose them against each other or bring that monster against one of those factions, well, you just dealt with that monster, right? Or sometimes you just have to admit things are beyond your ability and you have to come back later. So I, I don't think those are bad solutions. I will say that this conversation, you know, started on the Audio Dungeon Discord, and some of the really interesting comments that were brought up in there were the idea that if your low-level party does encounter something above their their keen, above their ability, you know, they should run away. That's okay. And maybe they're going to intelligently use the environment and intelligently use other things around there and other factions to engage it, or they'll come back later when they're higher level. But... If you have a monster you can't handle, but there's a pit trap in the dungeon, you could leave that monster the pit trap for it to fall down. Guess what? You just fix that problem, right? If you have different factions in the dungeon and you can pose them against each other or bring that monster against one of those factions, well, you just dealt with that monster, right? Or sometimes you just have to admit things are beyond your ability and you have to come back later. So I, I don't think those are bad solutions. You know, it's interesting what you're saying here. It actually reminds me of, uh, I was playing, this is years ago, I very first started playing online. I joined a basic fantasy role-playing uh, campaign. And when the first session I played in, there was like, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe six players. And by the way, this this is also, maybe I may mentioned this before, this is one of my favorite characters I ever played. And they only had one ability score that had a bonus, I think a plus one. And they had two ability scores with minuses. And that character lasted one of my longest running characters in a OSR type game. But anyways, um, so there was like six people maybe playing the first time, and then for whatever reason, scheduling or whatever, the next session it was only 
uh, myself and one other player. And the dungeon master, you know, being a kind of an old school dungeon master type, he was like, well, you know, I'm not really going to change the module. You know, you guys are just going to play smart. And then we did. And it just turned out that, like, we ended up, the other players completely dropped out. There was only two of us in the module that really needed about six PCs. Neither one of us were strong. I was a, a jester. <laughs> um, and again, with bad ability scores, the other player character was a cleric, I believe. And we were facing, you know, in some rooms, they'd be like six bugbears, right? And we did exactly the stuff that you're saying. We actually figured out, we found it was in a castle, like an old abandoned castle or like partially abandoned. I can't remember what was going on. But anyways, there was storerooms and stuff that still had some useful stuff. So we would like set up traps for them. You know, we'd like build a, uh, uh, we'd go like a staircase, right? And we'd like pour oil uh, like down the center of it or whatever. Uh, and then one of us, the, the slower one, the cleric, because she, she was an armor, she would stand at the top with a torch around the corner, and then I would go down, let the bugs bears see me, and then start running as fast as I possibly could. We know we knew that they were, you know, the same speed as me, so they couldn't technically catch me. And then we, I would whip up the stairs, and as soon as they were all falling behind me, she would drop a torch on it and burn them to death. I mean, that was we didn't do that every single time. Obviously, it wasn't a rinse and repeat, but that was like one example of a thing that we did. You know, at one point too, we like dro- we used like the porkalises and we dropped them on people as they ran by. We literally became those kobolds from Tucker's Kobolds, but as player characters. And my favorite part about that was that the DM let us do it. Like he, you know, he didn't restrict. That's not in the rules. This is how this works. Oh, they're gonna do this. He he tried to play it intelligently in the sense that like, okay, what would bugbears do if they just saw a person? You know, how would they do that? And I think he played it really fair in those many times that we almost got killed. But in the end, we ended up leveling up pretty quickly because, you know, we started on first level. What happened was there was just two of us and like we were beating all these things and then we would go into a room and there'd be a shit ton of gold. The one thing that that he did do that was uh, not exactly with the rules is that he didn't make us actually take the gold back to town because we were just having fun playing in the dungeon. We didn't want to have to keep like role playing. Okay, we're going to leave the dungeon. We're going to go back to town. He was just, if you discover it, you'll just get the the experience points for you, you know, by the next session or whatever. So we, you know, in that way he did bend the rules a little bit, but it was really, really fun. It was one of the the best uh, games I ever played in as a character. Way better than Curse of Strahd. <laughs> Sorry to the 5e people that they rant about Curse of Strahd being so good. To me, that was the most railroady, crazy thing that I've ever been in. Well, maybe not the most, but I had fun playing it, don't get me wrong, but it was a terrible module. Um, original Ravenloft? Good module. Wow, I really went off in a circle there. But anyways, yes. <laughs> players player skill, players being creative, and DMs letting them be. That that's that's key here because you want to be an adversary, as Taylor says from Clerks Wear, Wear Ringmail, but you also want to let things happen. You know, you want them to be able to succeed. You want to root for them, you want to give them the chance. If there is a chance, you want to give them that chance. So if you're playing with a great DM like that. You can succeed at doing all kinds of crazy stuff at low levels. And you know what the thing is, is that if we had done that and then one of our, one of our characters died, we would have just rolled up another character. You know, it wasn't like it's the end of the world because your character dies. And I, I, it's another reason why, like, these rules like games. I'm more willing to risk my character running down the corridor with all these bugbears chasing me when it only took me five minutes to roll them up than I would be if it took me an hour. So I suppose that just changes the, the way you play. In any case, that, that's kind of a long rant. Thanks, Jason. Lake Wobegon refers to the PBS show, um, crap, um, Garrison, what's his name? Um, anyway, Prairie Home Companion. 
you, you may have heard the Guy Noir skits or other skits, but um, uh, Garrison Keller was the host. That that was, uh, but anyway, Prairie Home Prairie Home Companion was a popular show on public. I, I said PBS. I meant NPR. A popular show on NPR, public radio, um, and that's where Lake Wobegon comes from. Hopefully, I'm not the only one to call him. Luckily, even with the small budget that I have here at the Bandits Keep uh, Anchor Podcast, I've got on hand a researcher, uh, a Joe Richter from the Hindsightless Podcast. You know, I uh, I don't pay him well, but uh, I don't pay him at all. But luckily, I have him here to research things, and he's here. He's here to tell us all about arrows. Yo, Daniel, dude, you made me do a little research, man. You said that you don't let people reuse their arrows because it's not realistic. And I know we don't really care about realism in games, and this is not a hill I die on. But I looked it up, and yeah, uh, medieval archers often reuse their arrows because arrows took some time to make. So I don't see why it wouldn't be realistic, especially if you were in like a dungeon environment. You hit a goblin with an arrow, why can't you then grab that arrow out of the goblin? It's probably fine. Then you roll for it. So yeah, I, I like what your what the new caller was saying. Even though he may have been being sarcastic, he was kind of right. <laughs> Peace out. Well, there you go. You can get your arrows. In fact, I'm now starting to work on a mini game where, depending on the type of arrow that you fire, the type of uh, armor or lack thereof uh, that you penetrate with it. Uh, the chance that the arrow will be blunted, which will have some kind of a, a, a minus on damage, or possibly damaged. And if the arrow is damaged, it will take a skill proficiency roll to fix it, uh, which you can, of course, do uh, during your downtime, uh, as long as you put some points in uh, fletching or arrowhead uh, construction or remaking, maybe blacksmithing, I guess. Uh, also, um, you know, anytime you miss with an arrow, we're going to make some kind of a, a spot hidden or navigation roll to see if you can find that arrow. Um, and also there's a chance, you know, because arrows could fly by and miss the target and then hit some random person. So I'm going to roll for a random encounter every time that somebody misses with an arrow to make sure that you didn't, you know, by mistake, shoot that owl bear that was kind of wandering around behind. I like this. Yes, this is definitely the way to go. And, of course, I'm being sarcastic. Yeah, I mean, I've done it both ways. I typically don't worry too much about it. I mean, if people did reuse their arrows, I mean, I wonder, did they reuse their arrows in warfare? Or did they reuse their arrows when they were hunting? And how much repair or modifications they had to do the arrows? I don't know anything about archery. So, again, maybe uh, if you... (laughs) I'm way too lazy to research it. But I'm curious about that. Because whatever, like, a blanket statement that's made that somebody did this thing, it's like, well... You know, in under what circumstances? I, I assume in a combat, you know, you're penetrating armor and stuff. And I and I watched that one guy, God, what's his YouTube channel where he makes all the different bows? And I can tell you, he does the you know, four, five, six shots, and he does reuse the arrows, but they are they get toasted. So I just kind of assume that if you were actually fighting somebody and not shooting, you know, a target, that uh, your arrows would be ruined. But you know, again, what do I know? Maybe we'll have to have a, a session zero discussion about that and decide democratically um, amongst all players if it will be okay if arrows are destroyed upon launching from the bow. Also, by the way, in my chainmail hack, it, just because of the nature of how it works and it's abstracted, you, when you make a, a volley or shoot with, you shoot with your bow or whatever, you just have to check off one arrow, even though you could potentially kill multiple foes. 
So none of that makes sense. So I, I definitely would not, uh, this is not a hill I'll die on either. <laughs> but it is kind of an interesting conversation. Looks like Jason has a few more things to add to this, uh, thankfully, because uh, I don't really have much else to say. So, well, Jason, give me something to talk about. I'll just leave this here, even though you're going to hear it across multiple episodes, multiple shows, no doubt. I probably made a mistake using the term GM GM Fiat because Joe is now going to grab onto it like a lion on a tourist on safari. And I don't think he's going to let me live down that term for a long, long time. Oh, no, I'm glad that you were that guy. I mean, I, I do understand that somebody who runs the game all the time is probably going to use that mechanic since it's so important. But again, beer and pretzels, just playing once in a while, I think it's, I am probably could go through every game that I play and I could name things that that people will just forget to do on a regular basis that really can affect the game. And that's just one in, in that, that situation. You know, another uh, popular one I think that people forget a lot when they're in games is range. You know, the, the usually in most games, if you have different ranges of weapons, you might have a bonus or a penalty. You know, these are things that we often forget when we're just kind of playing casually. So, um, or maybe I'm just not a good player. Well, I know I'm not a good player. Maybe I'm just not a good GM and I forget those things. But in any case, uh, sure, you are the one example that, that makes the rule that everybody forgets that. So, perfect. Now I know that I am right because you. if one person didn't disagree with me, then I definitely would not be right. I think that's how that works. I'll call that podcaster fiat. Before I go into a rant about the usage dice, I will say that I am the smartest guy in the world as far as electricity goes because I'm smart enough to stay away from it. I, too, would hire somebody to come install a new fuse box and mess with electricity in my house. Uh, uh, you know, I say that. I mean, if I have an outlet that goes bad, I'll swap out an outlet. But for the most part, I don't want to mess with electricity because it'll really mess you up, man. Oh, yeah, the real stuff will. 220. That 120 that we deal with mostly in America here, that's nothing. I lick those. I lick sockets all the time. It's no problem. No, I'm actually a pretty competent electrician, to be honest with you. Um, but yeah, you can definitely screw up. I was I was doing some uh, uh, changing out. What was I doing? I was trying to rewire uh, the. There's like a makeup area in my photo studio, and my photographer friend was helping me. And I was like, oh, we got to take that that thing off. I'm like, well, let me just turn off the power here. And he's like, oh no 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 no. He's like, I'll just be careful. And of course, he it was a uh, what do you call it? A metal. Uh, uh, cover to the socket and he started turning it and spun sideways and he he literally flew across the room it was so funny i mean it was funny now because he wasn't hurt but i mean he was like holy crap and of course now then we're standing in the dark because all the power went out <laughs> so so yeah maybe we shouldn't mess with electricity but you know I, I am with electricity the way that i expect players to be in my games you gotta touch stuff you gotta mess with it i said i was gonna give you a rant on usage dice i i don't think i am because I don't totally agree with you. I don't disagree with you as far as counting beans and bullets and counting arrows, to be honest. I was playing devil's advocate when I talked about that because you're right. For it to work in a legless situation, you would have to roll the dice before. So you would roll the usage. I'm going to attack with my bow. Roll the usage dice. I still have arrows. Make your attack roll. That's how it would have to work. Or you could just roll the usage dice the same time you roll the two hit die you know, you could roll the dice together. But either way, you have to roll before you adjudicate the hit, right? I, unlike you, am a huge proponent of using usage dice for the length of spells, how effective a spell is, the 
how big a cloud. It's also good for diseases and adjudicating whether you overcome disease. So you would roll usage dice as you slowly overcome a disease or not, right? Um, so there are ways you can definitely use it. I understand if you don't like the, the mechanic. And, and, and to be honest, I don't use it very much myself. But I do think there are places it, it is nice to have. But again, I think you can run a totally good game never using usage dice, just like advantage-disadvantage. Barbarian's Lemoria, my favorite sword sorcery um, rule set, uses the precursor to advantage-disadvantage because that game existed before 5e. But that doesn't mean I think every game should have advantage and disadvantage. I, I think that's overused in the gaming sphere these days, to be honest. So you're not wrong, but I, I don't think you're totally right either. I, I think they can be used and they're not negative. But I agree with you, they can be overused, so it really just depends on the DM and the group and what you're doing. But I, I don't think usage dice equals bad, but just like advantage, disadvantage doesn't equal bad, but I think both are probably way overused in today's games. See, now I really like the idea of using it for overcoming a disease. I like it for the, even like, some kind of abstracted travel mechanic, right? To see like how, how much uh, distance you make in a day. Uh, I could see it for, again, using it for things like, again, your Oregon Trail deal, right? Where you're going to like, okay, did the food run out? Do we have enough water? I like it for that. I think that where it's used though, that I don't like it, which is where I see it used the most, is things like lanterns, which I think is something you should, that's again, player skill. How many arrows you have, that's player skill. These are the times where um, I see it used most often in games, and those are the times where I don't think it's useful. And, you know, personally, I don't generally play out how long it takes a disease, whatever, but if you're playing that kind of a game, then, yeah, I totally could see that. In fact, with my uh, injury versus uh, death chart that I have, now that you're saying that, I'm thinking, wow, I could go in there and instead of, like, I literally, like, did quick research to see, like, roughly how long different things take to heal, and I figured, you know, put a a range in there, but a usage die might be a better way to go, right? It's like, okay, you break, uh, you know, your leg, it's a, it's a D6 usage die before you're healed, you know, roll once a week, you break, you know, a, a rib, it's a D20, you know, because small bones are harder to heal. Uh, so I've been told. I'm not sure if that's true, I'm not a doctor, but that's what I was told. Well, that's what I was told, and I say told, meaning I read stuff on the internet, which, you know, is how we learn everything these days. I'm also going to state somewhat randomly because it kind of ties into what I said earlier that, you know, my father is, is, and was, um, an amazing, uh, general worker kind of person, I guess. I don't know what you even call it. He, uh, you know, construction, uh, electricity, plumbing. And I, I, I say this and I, as kind of a joke, but it's actually true is that I didn't realize until I was like a teenager that there were things like plumbers and electricians and stuff. We literally did everything. If there was something broken in my house, my father fixed it. So to this day, when I have to do something, I get on the phone with them and I say, hey, I'm looking at my fuse box right now, blah, blah. But the thing is, uh, the electric that I didn't want to do was attaching to the main line from the street. That's actually very uh, dangerous. And I don't even know if they would have given me a permit for it, to be honest with you, uh, without a license. So, uh, but yeah, running regular electric, I mean, I was joking about it, but running the general electric stuff is, is, is you know, it's, it's, it's simpler than you think. You just have to be careful. And I think a lot of people lack uh, 
say, I don't want to say common sense because that's not it either. The ability to just be um, attention to detail. That's the way we got to look at it, right? Because when you're doing uh, electricity, it's a fairly simple concept, but detail is everything. Back when I moved into my house, I was trying to uh, uh, change a switch and I like opened up this box and I realized the guy reversed these two wires and it would still work at up to the point that he was at because the way electricity works, not to get too much into that, it was fine. They swapped they swap the, the neutral and the uh, the power. However, neutral and the hot, I guess is what you say. Uh, but the problem is once you left that box, it was a problem because now everything was backwards. <laughs> so if you tried to hook it to another one, all of a sudden you had, uh, you had cross circuits. So it was really funny because... I tried to run something and all of a sudden like nothing worked. And I was like, what the hell? So I had to track it back. And the guy had just literally put the white wire to the black one. Like, why would you do that? But anyways, white to white, black to black, green to green. That's how we do it. Simple enough. I mean, that's assuming normal U.S. wire colorings and the type of electricity run here. Do not take that as an authorization for anybody listening to this to go do electric that way because it could be different. Also, 220 is different. Also, if you run a switch, it's different. So... Yeah, uh, read a book, uh, apprentice with somebody, don't touch anything electric, don't blame me, and uh, yeah, make sure you have insurance. Ah yes, John has returned to comment again, and as he will learn, the more you comment, the more you are drawn in. Take it away, John. Hi Daniel, this is John Cantor. You know me on YouTube through my political handle, John Lennon. I'll probably be creating a new account just for role-playing. I think it's fine to have a game that concentrates on resource management, but you're probably going to want to focus in in much greater detail. Instead of epic journeys and battles, it will be day-by-day -day survival, where every battle is not only about your immediate survival, but about whether you'll have enough resources to make it to the next day. I'm actually working on an RPG, which is essentially a grimdark resource management game. It's a cross between In the Dungeons of the Slave Lords and the board game Kingdom Death Monster where the players with randomly generated characters find themselves thrown naked into a labyrinth with only a few randomly generated items and supplies. And it's up to them to try to survive in a situation where they're not even sure that there is anything beyond that for them to hope for. Aha, that you make a good point, of course. But see, I think one of the things I often say about RPGs is that it's only important when it's important. So I don't care about tracking, you know, the exact number of grains of salt that you have. But I do like the idea that you have rations, right? What are rations? Who knows? It's an abstract, you know. I do like that there's a certain number of arrows. I think that's that stuff I like to track. Uh, really down and dirty, uh, not a big fan. Also, I'm not a huge grimdark person. Personally, I like hope. Um, I'm actually really curious um, how this cyberpunk game is going to play that Jason's putting on because uh, cyberpunk feels very, very grimdark and very hopeless, and that's just not my style. You know, I, I like, I like, uh, I said this before in post-apocalypse, I like to play the part of the apocalypse that things are coming back, right? So 
yeah, I mean, that sounds really cool. And I like the idea of randomly starting with items. Um, I think that's really cool. I, I love when I get a pre-gen and it has something weird on it, like, you know, uh, uh, a colored dye or something, you know, like a colored pigment for dyes or whatever. You can use that stuff in so many different ways and so be so creative with it, assuming the DM buys into it. Um, I think that could be really, really fun. So, uh, yeah, I'm curious to hear more about your uh, your game. Okay, I think we've got a new thing here with uh, John calling in. And you know, John, what's going to happen. Once you start calling into shows on Anchor, the next thing you know, you've got your own Anchor cast. So, uh, <laughs> prepare. And that's how it starts. It's, as they say, a slippery slope. I started calling in. I started calling in. Next thing you know, here I am making a podcast. And people are calling me, and then I'm calling them. And it goes around in a circle, and it goes around in a circle. But hey, you know what? At least I have somebody to talk to. Okay, we've got Kevin from the Red Caps calling in, as well as uh, Taylor from from Clerics Wear Ringmail uh, podcast and blog. So take it away, guys. Hey, Daniel. Kevin calling in from the Red Caps podcast. Just listening to Broken or Just Misunderstood. And you're responding to Jason here at the moment and saying uh, that the key word is only and that uh, if the game is only about, um, you know, being optimized and going for XP and what have you. And you said something along the lines of, if the game is about getting XP or getting to a stronghold, and I think that's something that I brought up um, uh, recently on, on Clerics Wear, Wear a Ringmail, is that that's not what the game is about. The game is about experiencing the world and telling a story. Um, maybe not a story that you pre-plan out, but an emerging story that you discover by... F- interacting with the world there it's not about getting xp or or winning it's about that shared storytelling experience that's why it's called a role-playing game anyhow just a random thought that as i'm listening i'll continue to listen and may call back in again with another point hey daniel kevin calling in from a red caps again uh, just getting onto the tail end of broken or just misunderstood and you're talking about how you dislike usage die and i kind of agree with you I'm a big fan of the Black Hack, but of all the mechanics that the Black Hack brought in, the usage die feels overused and doesn't really accomplish the goal of speeding things up. Um, I think it accomplishes the goal uh, that you had said earlier in the game that 5e uh, designers uh, realize is that people like rolling dice and it makes dice rolls happen. And, and if that's the type of player or game that you're in, uh, then it, maybe it's it's a better way than, than tallying things. But I also agree that for inventory and what have you, the usage die uh, is an idea that I think works better in your mind than actually at the table. And uh, I'm pretty much in agreement with you on that. Anyhow, uh, great work. Talk again soon. Well, I definitely can't disagree with you. And, I, and as usual, I, <laughs> I am not a man of one single opinion. <laughs> so... I do think that the game is partially the gaining levels and stuff, but of course the game is also telling stories and being with your friends. So if you never leveled up or le- never play, never uh, gained experience points or got better, would you still be playing D&D? Sure. Um, but isn't part of it the, 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 way, the way that you do level up, that you do gain power? Now, if the game didn't do that, if D&D was strictly, okay, we start with, and I've seen games like this, right, where you start with a set number of hit points or whatever, and as you travel around, you might get a magical sword, so maybe that's how you're leveling up, right? You're becoming more powerful because you have a magical sword, um, and then you get, you know, an army behind you, and that's how you're leveling up, you know, that kind of thing, right? But you never actually gain a level. Your your abilities stay the same, your 
your just your resources become your power. And that's a different kind of game, right? Than than the game where you gain experience points, and those make your actual physical, you know, your singular character more powerful. Um, but in both cases, you could play the game without worrying about that and just have a really good time, just hanging out with your friends and telling stories. So I think right, that's the role play part of it to me. I think if you're just role playing then you don't need a game. And if you're just playing a game, then you don't need the role play. But I think it's that weird combination of things that you can't quite, at least I can't quite, I won't say you can't, I can't quite put my finger on it and it changes day to day what it is what exactly it is that I'm going for. I'm working on a chain mail hack right now that has no levels, no nothing. You just play as a hero and you establish power by gaining armies and stuff. Completely different, no experience points, no whatever. But could you play it by running around collecting gold and not getting armies and not doing the things that you're supposed to do as it would be? Sure. And if you were having fun with your friends, you'd still be playing. So there you go. I guess we're all just playing the game. Happy Monday, Daniel. Uh, this is Taylor of Clerics Ringmail calling in to tell you about how much I hate usage dice. Usage dice detract from resource management. And I seem to recall you touched on this in a recent episode. I have no idea if I'm caught up or not. The last few days have been a bit of a blur. But the important part, the only place I can think where usage die might make sense, contrary to the position you took in your podcast, was ammunition. Why is that? Well, abstraction of the combat round. The combat round is an abstraction of time. In AD&D, or, or advanced D&D, it's one minute. In BD&Ds, or BX, so best D&D, it's 10 seconds. And we're told that an attack roll does not represent a single swing of the sword. It represents a flurry of activity and whether it is able to connect. For that same reason, it makes no sense that a single roll of the die for a ranged attack should represent a single arrow or bolt flying. In briefer terms, did the missed attack roll result from a launching of an arrow and missing, or were the movements of the allies or the uncertainty of the alighting, did those prevent you from getting a clear line of sight and you didn't release the arrow at all? Now, that works for me, and it is the only place where usage die sort of makes sense in a game like Basic D&D. However, that is predicated on the assumption that you're rolling the usage die every time. So every time I shoot an arrow, I roll the die to see if I reduce. If what you are saying, and I have not played Black Hack, so I, I prefer OSR games, uh, of course, but if what you were saying that you roll for usage at the end of the combat, not at the end of the use, then then if, if I have been interpreting incorrectly, and that is the way to do it, then we've, I think, confirmed that usage dies simply are not for me. So anyway, uh, they won't be making an appearance at my table, and I think we're uh, in agreement on that note. Right. Talk to you later. That you roll for usage at the end of the combat, not at the end of the use, then then if, if I have been interpreting incorrectly, and that is the way to do it, then we've, I think, confirmed that usage dies simply are not for me. So anyway, uh, they won't be making an appearance at my table, and I think we're uh, in agreement on that note. Right. 
talk to you later. I will say that I am not an expert on the black hack, but I have played multiple times, and I've played other games with usage dice. And every time I've ever played, uh, the way the usage was done was at the end of the combat, not at the end of each individual round. And honestly, if it was done at the end of each shot, um, even though you might be correct that uh, that could kind of add some kind of realness to it, maybe you didn't shoot, maybe you did shoot, maybe you shot two arrows and missed, um, I think that it would just be so clunky and just, just something else to keep track of that's just easier just to put a, a notch on my sheet that I shot an arrow. I don't know. Um, you know, it just wouldn't do it. But yes, my understanding is that if every game I've ever played on that used usage dice for ammunition, you fire, you uh, run out of ammo or you roll the usage dice, I should say, at the end of the combat. Not at the end of the round, not when you shoot, but at the end of the combat. So playing devil's advocate with myself, I will think in using some of the information that Taylor has put out there that makes a lot of sense, I could see one use for it in combat, and that might be in my OD&D with Chainmail hack. Because when the way that the missile fire is, is done is so abstracted, where essentially when you make a volley, you know, let's say that you are a hero and you are shooting a heavy crossbow at, let's say, some light footman or something, you might roll as many as a dozen dice, right? And <laughs> if you were to hit roll a dozen sixes, I mean, that would be a heck of a lucky, or any number of sixes above one, you would kill more than one person with, with that single shot. So how do we explain that? Uh, in fact, I've had it happen where I sh where somebody did it and they shot a heavy crossbow and killed two people. And they were like, how did I kill two people? I only shot one arrow. And I said, it's fantasy, man. You know, <laughs> so that's it. Right. I, I think that that would make sense. Right. And in the in the uh, act of um, oper in the order of operations with chainmail, because it's a little bit more structured, you could put a, a moment in there. Again, it would be uh, you'd want to do it every turn in order for it to be real realistic. I'm air quoting here. Um, but I mean, that wouldn't be that complicated, especially seeing that, uh, you know, the, the combat does tend to have a little more of a structure to it, especially in bigger combats where you're doing troop combat. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess I could see it there because, again, you could kill more than one creature with a single arrow, which kind of means that you may have shot more than one. But what happens if you shot, you killed five creatures, and then you roll the usage die, and it doesn't show the usage going down? How does that make sense? Perhaps you should reduce the amount of arrows by the number of kills you made. But then what happens if you get no kills? Do you not shoot any arrows? I mean, that might be a way to do it, actually. I, I almost wouldn't be opposed to that as a system. You only mark off an arrow if you kill something, and you mark off the number that you kill. But I don't know. I'm not changing anything based on that. <laughs> it's just a thought experiment at this point. But uh, I, I do like that idea, of which did never occur to me, of the idea that like you actually didn't shoot. That's why you missed. So I think if we've learned anything from this uh, series of podcasts that I've been putting out the last couple of weeks is that I have no one fixed opinion. I say a lot of things that might seem contradictory, but I think that's life. And uh, that's gaming, right? We like what we like. We don't like what we don't like. But if there's one thing that I will stand on the hill and die for, it is the usage die. I just don't get it. You could have a game that only gives you advantage. Like, that's the only mechanic in the game, and I would be fine with that, even though I don't like advantage. But usage dice, ooh. 
I shouldn't hate on it so much. It's not like I've created any kind of awesome mechanic, right? It's like, think about it. The, the, you know, I, I give, we, we all do this, right? We criticize these different things or we say what we like, we don't like. But the reality is that these designers out here have made some pretty cool things. I don't know if, um, ooh, his name escapes me right now, like that created the black hag. I don't know if he was the first one to use usage dice. That's the first place I've seen it. Um, but that doesn't mean anything because it just means that he had the popular one, right? Um, but whether, if he did come up with it, but whoever did, really cool. You know, if uh, Barbarians of Lemuria came up with advantage or disadvantage or whatever, that's also cool. You know, whoever comes up with these mechanics, I think it's very, very clever. Um, and we need people to keep coming up with cool mechanics. So I'm certainly not uh, fully hating on that kind of stuff. I just, you know, I like what I like. I like a lot of narrative, but I like, <laughs> I'm going to use that word, Jason. I like GM Fiat. I like rules, uh, rulings, not rules. I like rule zero, if you want to call it that. Uh, I feel like we each and every one of us need to make our own game when we sit down at that table. And as long as everybody at the table is on board with how the game is run and they enjoy themselves, that's really what's important. You know, I know that, uh, I guess, starting with AD&D, they started to strive to make it so that every table was the same, right? That you could sit down, and you're playing AD&D because these are the rules and this is how AD&D is run. Yes, it said they're on the guidelines, blah, blah. But at the same time, you know, the rules were becoming more structured starting then. And they just kept getting more and more and more structured, it seems, as they went on all the way to the third edition, um, where they where they reached the pinnacle of, holy cow, there's a rule for everything. And some people love that. I'm not bashing on that. And then I think it started to uh, slide in the other direction a bit, you know, and then probably somewhere in the middle is where we will find happiness, you know, enough rules that everybody feels they're getting the fair shake at the table, but enough freedom that the GMs don't feel like they're just not enjoying themselves because they can't have the fun of creation or changing or whatever. You know, I don't want to play third edition where you have to use the same rules as PCs to run monsters. To me, monsters are monsters. They have their own rules. They can break the rules. They can do what they want. And even in when I ran a 5th edition campaign, I rarely used monsters from the book. And even when I did, I created spells for them. Yes, I made notes so I wasn't making it up on the fly, because I think that's BS as well. <laughs> when DMs just make stuff up to counteract the players, that's BS. But I created stuff that was unique, I hope, or at least different than what was in the book, by using what was there to create something that would be an experience from my table. Now, if I was running Adventure League, would I do that? Absolutely not. You can't do that with Adventure League, right? Everybody's got to have the same fair shake, right? So that is kind of the problem with play that needs to match. Your table is your table. And when you're playing with your group of friends, you could do whatever you want. If everybody at that table ends up with a Vorpal Sword or a Vorpal Cat of Nine Tails, and you love that, and that's the way you want to play, that's amazing. If you want to play Grimdark and everybody's suffering all the time and never levels up, also cool. If you want to play games where people are just collecting tons and tons of gold and all they care about is leveling up, super cool. If you want to min-max, well, anyways, you get my point. So <laughs> thanks for listening, guys. Uh, I finally, once again, caught up on the calls. Uh, and uh, hopefully, if I have some time tomorrow, I'm going to talk a little bit about, which I kind of hinted on here, I'm going even more slimmed back and going to transform or talk about why I might transform Chainmail itself. Not Chainmail with OD&D, but Chainmail itself into what I think might be a really great swords and sorcery game. Not high fantasy, not Tolkien, but straight up sweaty barbarian swords and sorcery. 
So talk to you all soon.